Art of the Cut is brought to you by FilmTools.com, your one-stop shop for production and post-production gear. Be sure to listen for an exclusive site-wide offer later in the show. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today, we're talking about the feature film Antebellum with editor John Axelrad, ACE. I've interviewed John before for his films Ad Astra and The Lost City of Z. John's other work includes Papillon, Krampus, Crazy Heart, and We Own the Night, among many others. Also with us is John's assistant editor on Antebellum, Jared Simon. Jared has also worked on Ad Astra and The New Mutants, as well as working as assistant editor on the pilot of the TV series New Amsterdam. Congratulations on a great movie. Thank you both for being here. If you would, starting with John, could you introduce yourself so the people who are listening and not watching can understand whose voice belongs to whom? I am John Axelrad. I am the editor of Antebellum. I've been editing for the last 20 years. Started off as an assistant editor in this uh, great industry. Learned from some of the best, like Don Camburn and V. Coates. I took the baton and have been editing pretty steadily for many years, so I'm very fortunate. Great. Thanks, John. And I'm uh, Jared Simon. I was the first assistant editor on Antebellum. Had worked with John first on Ad Astra and before that with uh, Rob Sullivan and Matt Rundell. It's really great having you both here. John, you've invited Jared to join us today, which I thought was a, a fantastic thing. I love that we're talking with him as well. What is the reason why you wanted him on this call? I've always maintained that editing is a team effort. My editing room, and I'm sure Jared can attest, I like to just have a very open, collaborative environment. I adore my assistants. I know they work extremely hard, and I want to be able to reward them by having them be involved creatively in the process. My past assistants include Tom Cross. I think he's done very well. <laughs> uh, he, he's done pretty good for himself. Yeah. <laughs> he was my assistant on, on five movies, and he got additional editing credit on all of them. It was still a little early in my career. I started sharing editing credit with Kayla Emter. She edited with me The Immigrant and the Don Cheadle, Miles Davis movie, Miles Ahead. And she's done very well. She uh, last year edited Hustlers. And then Lee Haugen was my assistant, and we've collaborated on a couple of films, including The Lost City of Z and Ad Astra. So Jared I met through Rob Sullivan, and Jared is, this is my first time, with Jared is my first assistant. Before it was uh, Scott Morris, who has been a great collaborator, and he wound up getting additional editing credit on Ad Astra. But Ad Astra was a film that just went on and on, and so Scott couldn't join me on Antebellum. Jared stepped in, and Jared did a fantastic job. He uh, was very creative when it came to visual effects, temping. He did most of the temping of our visual effects, but also narratively. Um, I gave him scenes to edit, I really valued his input, as did the directors. Was there anything um, special on this, Jared, uh, workflow-wise that was challenging or different from previous films you'd worked on? There wasn't anything that was specific or different about this. It was really more um, cemented a lot of the practices that I had learned on previous films, especially working on Ad Astra. And because of the environment that John Foster's in the room and John and Lee had on Ad Astra, you know, Scott was afforded a good amount of time. I mean, he was really busy, but he was afforded a lot of time to teach me uh, the best practices of, of how to step into the first assistant seat and what that would look like. So I wouldn't say that there was anything extraordinarily different, but I was prepared because of my experiences on that film and on The New Mutants, where, you know, I was hanging, I was hanging out with the first assistant on that for a lot of my time and just being exposed to what the responsibilities are and what to expect. That way I can be proactive and prepare for things down the line. And it allowed me to kind of, I built a database on this show based on the structure that I clung to that John provided, things like marker systems, marker formatting, versioning cuts. There was a lot that I, I built on 
upon learning those things. I really want to get to the editing um, with John and with you, but I am really interested in the database that you built. Uh, I'm assuming this is FileMaker Pro, and this would be what is called a code book. Can you speak to what the importance of it is, and what are some of the things that are in a code book, and why do you need them? I mean, I think a great resource that's out there is like Richard Sanchez's Master the Workflow, where he talks a great deal about his code book. And, Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I saw, I, that was on my periphery. I had read a lot of blog posts like Evan Schiff's you know, editing brain dump about, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of it is VFX databases. A lot of you'll see is database is, is VFX related. And I started learning, I started teaching myself FileMaker and I saw that it was much more powerful than even how I'm currently using it. It's still evolving. The crux of it is the code book, which is really just a repository for all of the dailies data that comes in. So when we were getting dailies in, the, you know, I had spoken with the dailies tech. I had made sure that he was putting the right the right information in the, in the bins and making sure that we had specific information that was coming through, um, that he his comments were coming through in the bin. And I had a bin view that I would export and bring that into FileMaker. And that would allow me later on down the line when we were doing VFX turnovers to have information that was coming in through EDLs from our timelines that were fed into a different portion of the database. It would pull from the code book and it would give me all this information like lens data. And there's so much that the database does that I, I'm having trouble because, because it's more than just VFX. I mean, it's, it's also, I used it for ADR. I used it to track our ADR lines. I used it for our continuity formatting to time the continuity as well. I used it to keep track of our DI and our optical effects. I used it to keep track of our music the Q sheet, we had a music editor in Eliona Query who was working down the hall from us, and he saw what I was doing with the VFX, just keeping track of that, and he was showing me what he was doing in Pro Tools, and just because I had taught myself FileMaker, I was able to build a whole portion of my database that he could access through a secure you know, wireless connection, and he was able to feed Pro Tools documents into the database, and it would do the math for him to do the timing on the cues. And that would save him time. And that also gave me insight as to, you know, what cues are we using in the movie? What version of the cues are we using? What's currently in there? He also had access to our continuity so he could see what scenes his cues were in. So it was a really great way to bring the whole team together. It wasn't just me using the database. It was also, uh, you know, our second assistant editors who were working on the movie that were able to tap in and do a lot of logging and, and description. Is that database, I mean, for you as an editor, is that something that's just invisible and you don't really worry about other than the fact that it makes things go smoothly behind the scenes? Or is it something that you're actually taking advantage of? Well, I only take advantage of it in so as much as that I really dot my I's and cross my T's when it comes to markers, formerly known as locators and AVID. And uh, I am very fastidious with ADR uh, marking ADR lines uh, specifically, like exactly where it should go. And uh, I kind of developed this format with Tom Cross where it's tab uh, delimited with equal signs that separate the different fields. And um, so I do that with visual effects, with DI effects, ADR, and it was important for me that nothing got missed. So when I saw Jared's database, I knew that he was properly going to handle uh, all this incoming information. It wasn't just going to be something thrown on a Microsoft Word document. Um, it was processed and everything was, uh, you know, visual effects, everything was being uh, tracked. So it just made me sleep better at night. I wasn't necessarily working with his database, but seeing what he was doing with it made all the difference to me. Well, so the peace of mind part, too, was... When we would version cuts, the way that, that John likes to work is with these work-in-progress cuts. And so the database also, I, I kept track of what version of the cut went out to which department when. And I could recall at a moment's notice, just like, oh, when's, what's the last turnover the music department got as opposed to the, the composer? And I kept records of that stuff um, because a lot of the versioning would fall to me as it was like, a, a you know, I would take the work-in-progress and then assign it a version based on the last turnover. It was the peace of mind of knowing that like everything is accounted for and everything is being taken care of. Let's talk a little bit about story and, uh, and structure and that kind of thing. This is a, an interesting movie from the trailer. I think everybody knows that it kind of occurs in two different time periods, uh, current, present day and uh, what appears to be the past. Can you talk to me about 
What kind of discussions did you have about that jump between those two worlds and, and how to deal with them without giving away the reveal? When I read the script, uh, I thought, you know, this is going to be a challenge in a good way. And I'm always looking to challenge myself with bold material. And I knew that balancing tone was going to be a challenge because it, it does change between Southern Gothic period piece, modern day romantic comedy, horror, action. I've done a few of those films before where I've balanced horror and comedy. I, I did two of them, Krampus and uh, James Gunn's Slither. You know, that is kind of an editor's dream and nightmare at the same time because you don't want to go too far in one direction. This film was a little unusual because they're very specific three acts, the way it was written, where the first act takes place in the antebellum days on a plantation. Then we shift to uh, modern day where it goes a little more comedic. And then the third act is returned to the plantation. And that's where the horror and some, and then it ends with some action scenes and stuff like that. So it wasn't so much intercut as much as an editor would want, but I totally respected and appreciated the three-act structure that the director-writers came up with. I fully embraced the script as it was, and just making it feel like one cohesive whole is what we as editors do and, and also lose sleep over <laughs> to make sure that everything is balanced just right. One of the things that I noticed was it was very important, it seemed to me, to follow Janelle Monet's character. I can't remember her name in the movie. Yeah, well, it's Veronica or Eden, yeah. It was very important to follow Veronica's um, point of view. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about point of view in your editing and either how you sense it and how you want to play with point of view or how you discuss that with the director? I've worked a lot with a director named James Gray. You know, he's kind of a neoclassicist with his filmmaking and... He is very, very particular about point of view and making sure that your point of view is with your protagonist almost at all times. Anytime we veer away from the main character's point of view, when I work with James, it's done intentionally on purpose, you know, to call something out. Sometimes he's had a side character look directly into the camera, which was an interesting technique to kind of break point of view. It was almost Ingmar Bergman-like. But with Gerard and Christopher, it's uh, Christopher Renz and Gerard Bush were the directors, they purposely did break point of view a few times. We are with Janelle Monet's character pretty much throughout the film. But in the first act, we do go with uh, Tungai, um, who's uh, a side character. We have a, a kind of emotional scene with him. There's some other characters, Julia, in the script that you know, we, we do spend more time with some of the secondary characters and leave our main character. And I did bring this up to them about breaking point of view, but their attitude was this is modern filmmaking. This is, you know, it's not chapter and verse that you have to stay in the point of view of the main character the whole time. And again, I, I respected that. I, I've kind of been, um, you know, trained in the neoclassical way of, of James Gray, um, but I welcomed something different and I think it really works. I mean, it's always been an audience favorite scene when we go with Tangai and, and experience um, his, uh, you know, his emotional scene. But the point of view of the character Janelle Monet is the through line between the three acts. And without giving too much away, it's also a change in perspective. We see the world through her eyes on the plantation. And then when we get to modern day, we see a different side to her and by the third act we're putting both characters together because she plays she's Eden on the plantation and Veronica in modern day and it culminates in the third act and uh, you know having that point of view and her perspective on the themes in the movie is hopefully what resonates with the viewer uh, yeah I just noticed it with things like um, there's a scene where she's in a in an Uber lift, and she kind of realizes that things are mm -hmm. are uh, not as they appear. And instead of revealing it with kind of typical coverage, you would you reveal 
it from her perspective. It's, you know, her point of view of the yes. scene. It's not some, um, you know, outside, you know, oh, let's just cut to the front of the car. So that's that was one of the places where I noticed it. And I also, um, I, I kind of noticed point of view in another scene where she is talking to her daughter about a, an interview she gave on TV. And when she's talking to her daughter, you're clearly using the shot from an angle as if her daughter is looking at her. She's, it's not a, a general angle. It's yeah. from her daughter's perspective. Yes, and, and the filmmakers and, and the cinematographer, uh, Pedro, I mean, they, they were um, very good about doing perspective. And, and yes, point of view in that sense, I could, I could totally see what you're saying. I think that has a lot to do with camera angle choices and um, you know, wanting to get into the child's eye um, of her mother, and then also to make that scene that you reference in the Uber and the Lyft, as actually an Uber, <laughs> but to make that scene, I think, a little scarier, not being able to see what was happening outside of her perspective. So I always, you know, I take point of view and perspective, some, some people may interchange them, but yeah, I mean, the perspective of those scenes was definitely through her eyes, and it was really to heighten the the terror and the suspense. Um, and, and the filmmakers were very good about that. I mean, they really wanted to um, see things through her lens, through her world. And thematically, that resonates uh, in, in the film. You know, when, when we get to the end of the film and we experience her horse riding, although we're not necessarily seeing it through her eyes, I mean, we're definitely seeing it through her perspective. Yeah, so do you want to talk a little bit about what the difference is between, in your mind, perspective and point of view? Is point of view a more thematic idea and perspective is more literal camera angles? How are you seeing those two words? Well, I do think of point of view in terms of more of a character arc. Um, so I see point of view as a broader term. It's, you know, we're with the character. So you can be in a character's point of view being on a, on a close-up of that character and, and sensing the world through their mind. Now, perspective for me is, is having, I guess you could call point of view angles, camera angles, uh, where we're actually physically seeing the world through their eyes. So to me, perspective is a little more specific to camera angle choices and uh, mise-en-scene and you know, how the director wants to portray the world. You know, wh whether it be through a child's eyes, a child's perspective. Um, the scene you, you mentioned was definitely an up angle at Janelle Monet. And, uh, but still the whole scene is, you know, is within Janelle Monet's point of view, but we're seeing it through the child's perspective. To use that same scene where they're looking at the footage of her on a news program with her daughter and her husband, the mm -hmm. other perspective thing, or not perspective, I would say point of view, especially the way as you just described it, would be there's a wonderful shot of her watching herself, and you can just see the play of emotion over her face. It's almost like she's reliving it or, or she's re-experiencing it and like... Yeah, I, that's what I wanted to say. There was a, mm -hmm. a, just a wonderful reaction shot, I thought, that put it back in her point of view of mm -hmm. how would you feel if you were watching yourself on, you know, a major national TV show kind of eviscerating a news host. <laughs> right, exactly. And, you know, and, and this was the, the point of view of the movie as a whole in a larger sense is uh, Janelle Monet's character and also the, the differences of her world in the, on the plantation and her world in modern day. She's still the same person. So it's really to get a better understanding of her, having gone through the first act, which is long, it's uh, you know, difficult for some to watch. Um, we knew this film was gonna be polarizing. There's no doubt about that. I mean, it's bold and risk-taking. And some people are very uncomfortable through the first act because it, it really de deals with the horrors of slavery and we don't shy away from depicting some of the atrocities. Um, but then to see who this person is in the modern day hopefully reinforces that point of view and then that prideful moment that you mentioned when she really 
sees herself, um, you know, put to shame this uh, conservative pundit on national television. Uh, the hope is really to have a better understanding of her character, and uh, hopefully that all comes together in the third act when uh, when uh, she decides to uh, defeat her her oppressors. Yeah, there's another one where I thought was great in her point of view, but not quite her perspective, which is a scene where uh, another slave on the plantation is saying, what's the plan? You mm-hmm. know, and I, wherever you're from, th- this is the way where things are going to be now. She's kind of explaining, mm-hmm. but there are great moments on her face where she's kind of getting challenged. And instead of coming back and trying to challenge back, she's, I don't know uh, how you would how you would uh, explain her expression, but it was definitely from that frustrated, I can't do anything, we're stuck, I've tried kind mm-hmm. of perspective, uh, point, of, point of view. <laughs> point of view, yeah. And, you know, what's really interesting about that scene, I know the director's intent is to kind of show the generational gap between the African-American, the older generation, which has a more Martin Luther King approach of, you know, let's wait it out, let's be patient, let's uh, continue to fight. You know, this is, um, you know, you may lose the battle, but we want to win the war type of thing. Whereas the younger generation being more impatient and, you know, let's do it now. Uh, I found it interesting that, you know, this was the framework for what the directors had in mind. It's the two generations clashing, really in a larger context about, you know, what oppression feels like from from uh, different uh, points of view uh, in terms of, you know, what what should we do? And, and it's also the frustration that, you know, if we act now, we may win the battle but not win the war. So it's, it's really um, something, I think, for all generations to reflect on um, you know, what do we do? Because the oppression still is continuing, obviously, in today's world. And, and this film is meant to reflect, uh, be a mirror to what's happening in society, socially and politically today. You mentioned intent. What is, um, is that something that you discuss with the director up front? Is it something that more happens during, you know, post-dailies cutting where you're in with the director and in, in, in the editing room? Yeah, I mean, I always try to have these conversations early, if I can. I always want to be able to break down a script and really understand the intent. To almost take a continuity or scene cards and mark them up with symbols or uh, notations of what the intent of every scene is. Because oftentimes during the shoot and in the chaos of dailies, you're editing out of order and, you know, you want to always remember what the core intent is. And unfortunately, a lot of times, my conversations with directors, uh, you get hired, (laughs) and in the case of Antebellum, I got hired, uh, I think, two weeks before shooting started, and they're on location, and we're editing here in Los Angeles. And I couldn't have those conversations as much as I wanted to. And that's the unfortunate thing with uh, post-production, is um, you know we should be part of the pre-production process. I think it's going to help the story overall. It's going to help the whole editing process overall. If we're there for the storyboarding, if we're there for the planning, um, the scene breakdowns, uh, even the rehearsals, uh, because the more information we have about the director's intent, the better the first edits are going to be. I mean, I will freely admit I totally missed the mark on many things. Um, one of the scenes at the end where she's riding a horse through a battlefield, I really didn't understand what their intent was. And they shot all sorts of footage. And Jared, you know, remembers this, but I, you know, cut it together what I thought was a very beautiful lyrical way. And that was clearly not what they wanted at all. It would have saved us all a lot of time uh, had, had I been able to have those conversations with them ahead of time. But it just, unfortunately, there wasn't time. But there were scenes during dailies that we would send, I think, weekly, or if it was, yeah. depending on the scene, sometimes it was daily, we would send them an output uh, so that we could get their feedback on a scene, especially if it was time-sensitive. Uh, and that was really cool to be able to get their input. And that was before 
I mean, they were on location, so it was before we were able to really sit down and, and flesh it out, but it was really great to get their feedback as soon as possible. Yeah, it's always important to send scenes out, you know, whether the director, or in my case, directors, <laughs> watches, them. <laughs> watches them or not, you know, it, at least I sleep better at night because one of the worst things for a director is to see the assembly. And actually one of the worst things for an editor is to watch the assembly <laughs> because... You know, you know that there, there are things in there that are not going to wind up being in there, but it is your obligation to include everything. I mean, this is the only version of the film where everything will be included. And even though you want to cut a line of dialogue, you know, desperately, or you just know that, okay, the script is really overwritten in this section and we don't have to have this certain scene in or, or it would be better if the scene got moved somewhere else, uh, you can't do that because you want the director to see the script as shot. And that's when you roll up your sleeves and start getting into it during the director's cut to fix things. So screening an editor's assembly is always painful. And so to Jared's point, sending them scenes as you're cutting them with the hope that they're watching them kind of lessens the the blow, so to speak, when they see everything strung together for the first time. That was one of the biggest lessons for me that I learned from John on this was, uh, I think one of the scenes that I was I was assembling when it came in was like the dinner table where they're all with the, the Janelle's character and her friends got to dinner. And I remember saying to John, I, I saw the daily, I didn't, I, I laid out the bin for that scene and I was very apprehensive of it because it was this revolving um, all the cameras were always roaming and you never knew who was going to be on camera. And I was always very apprehensive of those kinds of scenes because, you know, I, as, as an up-and-coming editor, as an assistant editor, I just go, oh, it's got to be like, how do I know who to cut to when? And I said to John, I was like, hey, could I, you know, take a swing at this? Just, I don't want to slow you down, so, I, you know, I don't, I don't want you to wait for me, but, you know, can I try it out? I just want to see if I can do it. And uh, and John said, "No, go go for it. It's yours." And and so I I tried, and you know John was giving me notes the entire way. And um, there was there were a couple of times where I'd call John in and say, hey, "Can you take a look at this cut?" And I I was like I I felt like I had an opinion on the scene. I was like, "Oh, I, I really feel like we don't need this line, or we could do this." And John was like, "No, we need to put this in there. We need to show them the whole scene." And uh, and so what I learned was to take an alt of the sequence of like a subsequence, so I could do what I thought was was a good you know a good note a good starting point, and keep it you know in our back pocket for later when the directors are in and reviewing. And that way you know for that scene and for many others, I mean there were a couple alts in the scene bins that you know as soon as the director sat down with John, they were able to go through and and we could present them immediately with other options and the ball the ball was rolling. Yeah. That was actually one of the questions I was going to ask John was, do you create alts for those scenes where you know something has got to come out? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I always do it. Um, I do it on the side. I just want to be prepared with that. And if a director spins out <laughs> watching something and he or she says, you know, this, this isn't working, it's like, wait, hold on. You know, what about this? I, one time, well, it was actually James Gray. I mean, I remember... I cut a scene that had all sorts of coverage. I mean, they, they just shot a ton. And many different angles, some were really cool, and I was, I felt, you know, it was an obligation. This was early in our, our collaboration together. Um, I felt it was an obligation to try to include as many of these different angles, you know, tastefully, as I could. And when he saw the first edit, he said to me, he's like, you know, you don't have to include everything that I shoot. <laughs> Um, but, you know, without proper communication, how do you know that? And without knowing what the hero take is or what the hero angle is, um, you, you know, the communication lack of, we're, we're just kind of guessing what the intent is. And so that's why, I mean, for me, dailies is the most frustrating part of the process because I'm always scratching my head and just trying to figure out, okay, what do they intend here? What, what is, and the script supervisor is very instrumental in helping me convey even offhanded comments on the shoot. I always ask the script supervisor to write down anything she, she hears if the director says something like, well, we're not gonna use this, but you know, let's, we're here, let's just shoot it. 
because um, that kind of stuff is helpful to me. So until such time as the director gets in the editing room, we want to have as many options prepared as possible to uh, you know, appease any frustration about an edit not working. Mm-hmm. And uh, that dinner table scene, I think that was another good example of not knowing what the intent was, because when the suitor comes over to talk to, to Dawn, you don't see his face in the film. Mm-hmm. You never mm-hmm. see his face. And it was a very conscious choice that, that they had directed that way. Um, and it's one of many motifs that they use throughout the film. We did have coverage of him. And the first version of that scene had him in there. And that was one of the first conversations that was, I think, had when we got to that scene was, we don't want to see his face. And so that was trimmed out and, and, and changed. But That's interesting that they would know ahead of time that they didn't want to see the face and this happens a lot, right? And you shoot the coverage anyway because what if the studio is like, we got to see the guy's face and then you're stuck, right? What What do you think was the deal with having intent not to show the face and not communicate that and yet shoot the 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 face? Well, I, you know, I think it's smart that they did get the coverage. Um, and I would always give a director advice like, hey, you can be 100% sure on the set that you're not going to need something and, you know, there's no way and we're going to shoot it a certain way. Uh, Warners are a good example of that. And I always plead with them. I say, please get coverage. You just don't know. You don't want to get to the editing room and regret, you know, not having done something that was very doable on the set. Um you know, grabbing an insert of something that you think, well, we don't need that. But, you know, if you're there or have a B unit team, you know, please do grab it if you can. It was the craze of the shoot. I couldn't talk to the directors before I cut the scene. Um, we noticed that his head was cut off in many shots, but it was multiple camera. And one of the cameras was trained on his face um, for many of the takes and many of the setups. And so we... Jared was right to edit it naturally the way that you would expect to see a scene, not knowing um, how they wanted it cut. Another good example, when I was an assistant uh, and I worked for Ann Coates, uh, along with Rob Sullivan, we were on the movie Out of Sight. And that famous intercut scene between George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez um, really that kind of got and the Academy attention. Uh, That was a scene, the intercut um, kind of uh, seduction scene. There were two separate scenes. It was in the script as two separate scenes. And it was cut that way as two separate scenes. So it wasn't until Steven Soderbergh got to the editing room and we realized he wanted to intercut them. Maybe he had that plan all along, maybe he was waiting to get to the editing room to explore some new ideas, but it was so pivotal to the movie and the style, the freeze frames, everything like that was just so pivotal to the movie, but we had no clue that that was something that Stephen intended. So I always tell directors when they see an assembly, which by the way, I think we cut very well considering, you know, what we can do with limited communication and cutting out of order. But, you know, they're, they're just, it's not what they envisioned. Um, it's always disappointing to a director. And I always remind a director that they usually have way more time in their director's cut than they did in the shoot. Um, obviously, a big budget movie that shoots more than 10 weeks, um, I guess medium budget movies can shoot more than 10 weeks, but, uh, you know, a director will have 10 weeks to do their, their edit. And, uh, and then it's not really over after that. You get the producer notes, the studio notes, and um, the director continues to tweak. He just has more collaborators. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with John Axelrad and Jared Simon. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. 
This week, Film Tools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on filmtools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on filmtools.com. So whether you need a GTEC hard drive or an Airy Sky panel, make sure to head over to filmtools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now back to my interview with John Axelrad and Jared Simon. Soderbergh's a, a real, he's a, an actual editor. I mean, he, I know he edits, correct? He does now, yeah. Early on, um, Ann Coates edited uh, Out of Sight and Aaron Brockovich. And I know Steven Soderbergh started shooting his own stuff and then eventually editing his own, uh, his own movies. But I don't think he started out that way. I don't know. Sex Lies and Videotape. I don't. Did he edit that? I don't. I don't think so. More of what my thought is that I know I've talked to uh, Fincher's people, and they said that Soderbergh helps them with edits on a lot of the Fincher stuff. I guess those two are collaborators and some, you know, like more friends than anything that's formal. But Soderbergh will go through and do an edit take on a lot of that stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, he's a he's a brilliant guy. He's uh, very multi talented, and he's not the first director slash editor to have uh, graced Hollywood screens. And you know, he's very good at at what he does. And I didn't know that with Fincher, but it makes complete sense. Mm. One of the things that I, I, that I really like talking about, and, and I'd be interested in hearing both of your perspectives on this, is the idea of ego and the place of ego in the edit room. Obviously, you know, you get some of the things that you mentioned, you know, the horse race or the horse chase scene where this isn't at all what I envisioned. Well, I mean, that doesn't mean your edit was bad. It means that, right, you did a lovely edit or you could have done a lovely edit and it was just not what the editor or what the director envisioned. Talk to me about how you how you deal with ego in the editing room, how important it is to have it and how important it is to subvert it. I always joke that editors need to be more beta (laughs) (laughs) dealing with alpha directors. Um, You know, part of our job is obviously the craftsmanship of editing, but our job also is being part politician, being part psychologist, and I always throw in like 1% magician. <laughs> but um, you have to be able to read the room and you have to understand the egos and really what's at stake for directors. I mean, they could be, they have so much pressure on them. I mean, if we put pressure on ourselves when we present an editor's assembly, you can imagine what they feel when they're having people watch it for the first time or when they're presenting it to the producers or the studio for the first time. I've worked with several directors that were both actor-turned-directors that they couldn't be in the room when a film was screened, even when it came down to the preview screenings and stuff like that for audiences. They just could not physically be there. They were on screen. They both acted in their movies, and that wasn't the problem. It was just having the director hat on and having to deal with the criticism. So you know you, you have to support uh, their ego. You need to support the process. You need to keep reminding them that this is a process, um, that we will get there, even though maybe it's not where they want it to be in that certain place. You could remind them that, hey, you know, we need to do a day of insert shooting. Uh, that's in the budget or something. You want to be able to offer solutions and and think of these solutions ahead of time, um, which is one reason I do alternate edits, as Jared mentioned. But also to you know to really think outside the box and and anticipate problems, anticipate what they're going to say or do, and be there to offer support and solutions. Um, but the most important thing is you just can't take things personally. I mean, as much as it hurts, and I've had certain director, you know, tell me something stinks that I've done, and deep down I know it doesn't really stink. We may spend um, a week recutting it, 
and will ultimately come back to something very similar to what was originally there. But having the director go through the process of discovery and understanding the dailies and understanding the limitations and to live in that moment and then come out on the other side of it, that's where patience, an editor really has to have patience. I always say I, I serve for the film itself and not like a certain person. Um, I'm always going to express my opinion if I feel the, the film as its own entity needs something. Um, instead of just being a yes man to the director. But at the same time, I always support the director's vision and what they hope to accomplish. And, and it's really the process of working together in a director's cut is understanding what the, the intent is um, so I can get fully behind the director. And a lot of times I would get called into the room to be like a tiebreaker to get an opinion. Uh, <laughs> in my, John and I had like these adjoining offices, like we had a shared door. So a lot of the times they'd be working and I, I would, I'd be right either on the other side of the door, the door would be open. And so a lot of times I'd be called in and they would ask, the directors would say, you know, what do you think? John always encouraged me to be honest, of course. And, you know, I mean, that's who I am. I'm very transparent. But um, so, you know, I never really, I, the piece of advice that has stuck with me that was given to me by another assistant editor when I first, you know, started out, don't try to be the smartest person in the room. Just try to be the most helpful. <laughs> And that's really stuck with me. And I think that that has a lot to do with ego because especially as an assistant editor, a lot of times I'll have an answer to one of many questions that will be proposed. You know, I'll, there'll be like five questions that get thrown like, you know, hey, there was a shot that we had with an owl and also we want to shorten this and we want to extend that. And then all of a sudden I have, I have all the answers as code book. I could search for the word owl and it'll come up and I can give them the exact two takes, but it's not very helpful in the moment to share that. I think it'd be a lot of my ego to be like, yes, I know this. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of what I do, you know, as an assistant is listening and then I'll come to John later and I'll have all of the answers on a post-it and I'll say, here's this. Especially if I have an opinion about something, a lot of times I'll wait to share it privately and then we can discuss it and see if it's something that it's worth, you know, promoting and bringing up. Um, I, I think that's very important that Jared just mentioned about, you know, the... Me too. <laughs> demeanor of an assistant. I, I would always encourage an assistant, like I have the best interests of the director in mind, as well as my assistants. I always look out for them. But an assistant should have the best interest of the editor in mind that they're supporting and not say something that creates work for an editor or creates problems for an editor. And yeah, I, I've been in a situation where I've had an assistant say something with the director in the room that um, cause problems. And in that case, the assistant was very green and didn't know. Um, I pulled that person aside afterwards and, and let them know uh, the protocol. So yeah, Jared was very good about that. And I think having private conversations or even being in a room and having an idea for a scene, <laughs> um, you know, to privately communicate it to the editor. Um, I always give credit. I never try to take credit. But you, an assistant may not know where all the bodies are buried in terms of things that have been tried before. And you don't want to have someone say something that opens a can of worms. Something maybe that, as an editor, I got a director to change your mind about something. And I don't want to go back there and have them say, yeah, that first, idea, that first crazy idea I had, let's try that again. So, um, again, it all comes down to communication. What are some of those things um, with your assistants, John, that beyond cutting a scene, I always think that cutting the scene is as good as it can be a sketch. And then so much happens in the note process that that's where the real work of it happens. And mm -hmm. to be able to see that part of the process is almost more important than cutting the scene at the beginning. Can both of you talk about kind of the process that a scene takes place takes from the editor's first cut on and how you try to bring an assistant into that process or show them here's how it works? Well, I mean, in the case of Antebellum, Jared mentioned we were very fortunate. We were editing over at EPS before the pandemic and we had adjoining rooms. So a lot of times I'd have the door open. Jared could freely listen to what was going on, even with the door closed. 
he could hear everything that was going on. And it was kind of funny because I'd be talking with the directors. They would say something like, oh, you know, we could really use like a temp V effect here. And then we hear Jared say, I'm on it. (laughs) So I try to be as proactive as I could. Yeah. But, you know, to have an assistant editor be engaged like that creatively and to be listening in, it, um, you know, it doesn't always happen because rooms can be small and uh, there's not always that opportunity for an assistant to observe that part of the process. They could be more involved during dailies and the first edits of scenes, but sitting in with the director, sometimes directors want to just be alone with the editor. Um, sometimes I, you know, I've had, when, when I work with Tom Cross, I would get him involved and I suggest to the director, hey, let's you know, have Tom work on this while we're doing this. I mean, I always try to involve people creatively because I just think that it, it gets people inspired. Um, it makes your team work harder. I never think fear is <laughs> a way to get to motivate someone to work better. I just think being involved creatively and ultimately it helps the film itself. Uh, I just care about the final product. So, yeah, I mean, I do whatever I can to have an assistant see the process of the edit during the director's cut stage. Jared, thoughts on that? I was really uh, grateful that the directors were open to everyone being as involved as they, to their interest level, and we were all 100% passionate about what we were doing. You know, not just me, you know, our second assistant editor, Dave Levinson, and our PA, Marco Gonzalez. I mean, we were all involved and we were all engaged. And, you know, as as, many, as often as they could, they would be either, you know, Marco would be in my room or Dave's room, always asking questions. And that mentorship mentality is one of the things that really, you know, attracted me to to John and to Rob and Matt as well when I first started working out, working with them. And, I mean, I'm very fortunate to be able to work with people who want to see me get involved. It was really, you know, going back to ego and, and the evolution of, you know, the editor, a scene from the editor's cut uh, through to the, you know, how it evolves, um, you know, I would never have, like, my feelings hurt as I saw how a scene that I might have roughed out or assembled, how it was changed drastically or not, because I always thought it was just so eye-opening to see, like, you know, I, I forget which scene it was. It was just like a new, we were, John was reviewing it, and I looked at it, I said, oh, that's different than how I had put it together. And he's like, oh, well, yeah, I was, you know, I was working with the directors, and we decided this and that, and, and this is where we landed right now. And I said, that's really cool. I love seeing the different perspective of it. Um, I think the other thing is like, you know, John is really meticulous about sound work as well. And, you know, his expectations for himself are really high. And that's what motivated me to want to be able to get him to listen to something that I did and hopefully think maybe that's something that he did, you know, like, oh, wow, that's, that's just as good. You know, that's great. Um, and so a lot of times, you know, the evolution of a scene would be me you know, doing sound work or tempy effects that would elevate it. Um, you know, one of the things, just because of our schedule and maybe our budget, was that, you know, we were doing previews and we needed, to, we, I don't think we did a single uh, pre-dub for the, or temp mix for the previews. And so we were cutting in 5.1 and we were really uh, mindful about how we were putting together sounds. And we had stuff from the sound department that they had treated and sent back to us specifically um, that was really helpful and, and sounded really cool, like this blurred f- product. We had the, they, they recorded frogs on location. They sounded a little bit like goats. It was ominous and creepy, and you know the, our, our sound team worked on it. They blurred it together, and they sent us a bunch of these 5.1 ambiences that were very unsettling, and we incorporated those. But things like, you know, tool, using tools like Isotope RX and, uh, and Mocha to be able to get some of these temp V effects to a level that doesn't bump the directors when we're, you know, trying to edit a scene and trying to get the point of the, the scene across or to show it to a preview audience and no one goes like, wait a minute, that took me out of the scene. Um, I think that that was really important and that was something that I had to spend a lot of time on and I enjoyed spending a lot of time on. I think, you know, some editors do object to uh, doing sound work, doing music work. And, and I totally respect, you know, the work that music editors do and sound editors do. And um, they, I mean, they could definitely do things that I can't even approach. 
Um, I think some of it is like a necessity to sell and edit where I just feel the need, okay, I've really got to polish the dialogue here. And Jared introduced me to Isotope RX, how to create ambiences, you know, how to EQ match lines and stuff like that. And we employ a lot of that, and it is a lot of extra work, but my goal is to sell and edit. Plus, for me, it's kind of like fun time, icing on the cake, you know, playing with sound design. But we had a, a terrific sound uh, design team, David Esparza, would feed us his design and we would incorporate it in 5.1 in the Avid. And we knew our schedule was tight. Um, the budget of the film was under 10 million. And um, we really wanted to maximize our final mix days. And so the studio was very tickled that we were able to avoid temp dubs every time we needed to preview because we would handle the mix in the Avid and uh, be able to project 5.1. You know, I don't even think, like, we did one scene we did a, a DI color correction on, but pretty much everything was straight out of the Avid. John, you mentioned early at the, be at the beginning of the interview that there were elements of this movie that were similar to a couple of other movies you'd edit in, edited in the past. Do you think that led you to uh, landing this gig, or uh, can, you, can you tell us about how you came to, to get this job or why the directors chose you? I, I interviewed with them, and I had a hard time like getting the interview. I finally did, and I think I had a very good interview. They seemed to really respond to me. It was all through Skype. I remember they said, well, if we had to see one film of yours or parts of one film, what would it be? And I suggested that they see The Lost City of Z. I don't know why I chose that. I mean, I'm very proud of the film, but they start watching it and it begins with a horse chase, which <laughs> is in uh, the end of Antebellum. I, now, it never occurred to me that they were going to respond to the horses. I had read the script for Antebellum, but... As soon as they saw the horse chase, they called me back and they're like, hey, you know, the, we can see you, you can edit horses. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, that's yeah. That's why I, I didn't edit get horses. this movie, because I'd never edited horses yeah. before. <laughs> I just didn't think I could do horses. Yeah, you know, this, this business wants to pigeonhole you. And, and no slight at all against the directors. I mean, they obviously wanted to, to vet everybody and, and choose, and I think they chose me for other reasons. But... I can't tell you how many times I get turned down for an interview because they're like, oh, he doesn't have enough comedy, or oh, you know, he, he only edits this, or he only, you know, his, his pace is uh, more, you know, slow, um, or whatever, you know, these labels that people want to assign to you. And I just want to say to them, you know, hey, I mean, would you want to do the same thing over and over again? No. I mean, I, I try to to mix it up as much as I can. I've been very fortunate to edit both romantic comedy, horror, some action, drama, and I really try to not get pigeonholed because this town really does want to do that to you. But one of the reasons I got the job was horses. On that subject, what is it that you've, as you said, you've worked with some fantastic assistants. I've met Lee uh, Hogan uh, myself. Mm -hmm. What is it that that makes somebody stand out either in an interview or it sounds like maybe um, you, you had, uh, you know, a recommendation from a close friend that, that that's the reason mm -hmm. why. What, what, what's going to land a, an assistant a job with you? Um, hey, you're putting me out of a no, job. No, no, no. You're moving <laughs> up. After this movie, after this movie you're going to move up to editor and, he, and John is going to be looking for another assistant. And so how is that person going to get the job? Uh, well, you know, like in the case with Jared, it was, Jared was very proactive. You know, he reached out to me when I was editing on Ad Astra and I invited Jared over for lunch and we chatted and I thought he was charming and wonderful, but um, at the time I didn't really have anything. And uh, we did have an opportunity to expand the assistant team and I thought, well, let's give Jared a shot. And Scott Morris and Lee were open to it, and then Jared just impressed. And I think for me, it's ideally is having that time spent with that person and just feeling something is clicking. So a lot of times a person may start out as a second assistant or even an apprentice and work their way up. 
you know, for, for me, what's really important is just having the acumen and the, the ability to anticipate issues. Um, I mean, Jared is, I mean, he, I mean, I'm, you'll freely admit, you know, he doesn't have a long list of first assistant editing credits, but there is just something about his tenacity and his awareness and his ability to act and do things very efficiently that really spoke to me. And I thought, he's, he's perfect. He's exactly what I'm looking for. You know, he's um, anal retentive like I am and, you know, a little OCD on stuff and wants to get everything right. And that's, that's really what I appreciate. Jared, what are some of the things that you think in that description of how does an assistant impress? What do you think some of those things are that you do that helps you show that you can move up? Well, first, thank you for the kind words, John. I really appreciate it. At the end of the day, I'm very grateful for the job. I mean, I I love what I do. I love, I mean, to quote Keanu Reeves, <laughs> I love movies. Gosh, I love movies. Uh, I love watching them and I love making them. And so that's that's the primary drive behind you know, everything. And to be able to work with people that make the day better is just fuel to the fire that makes me want to do my job so well. So those things that I do, the attention to detail that I saw, John, what I noticed what John was paying attention to. And I made sure that those things were just, import, just as important to me as they were to John. Um, I'm always paying attention to you know technology because that's actually what I think got me interested in movies in general back, you know, when I was like in high school and I was playing with computers and I found Final Cut 7, I was like, oh, I want to play around with this. So that's kind of my angle. And I think now, as I continue to establish myself, I think one of the things that I'm really looking forward to, you know, continuing the conversation and growing as, as an editor, as a person, is the storytelling of it all. And that's, you know, uh, that's what I, those are the conversations that I want to have and that's what I look for. And that's, you know, one of the reasons I want to continue working with, with John is I think all of these assistant tasks are kind of uh, a setup for, for that, for being able to tell a good story. It's, it's keeping track of like these ADR lines and why they're important for clarity. Is it because, you know, something muffled? It gives me, um, something to pay attention to one of the it's just adds to the list of things that I'm paying attention to when the dailies are coming in so I have uh, just a, a more acute sense when I'm watching dailies of, of how to mark them you know there were things that John taught me about watching dailies when they were coming in about you know marking a flub or a reset but also marking a good moment what makes for a good moment like that dinner table scene you know John would drop a black marker uh, for any you know any really great reaction or, you know, uh, he would mark, um, green for improvisation. He would mark, uh, what was another one? Blue for any sort of, if there was like a camera bump or like a, a focus went out of, um, you know, the focus bumped. And so those kinds of things I became more acutely aware of. I love the diversion into markers and the point of markers. Um, John, because you've, uh, I would love to hear you talk about uh, a little bit more art. Um, we've talked about a bunch of uh, politics and technical things and a little bit on art. If I can have a few more minutes of your time to just talk about um, tension. A lot of your movies, John, have incredible tension. This is one of them that the tension builds and builds and you watch scenes and your heart is beating out of your chest. What What is it that you can do as an editor to enhance what they've done on set to build tension in a scene? That's, that's a good question. Um, yeah, a lot of the projects I've worked on has kind of that character intensity. And, and I think it really comes down to character. I think you really need to invest in a character. Um, some scripts are in better shape than others. Um, but as an editor, I'm just always interested in getting the emotion out of your main character. And we talked earlier about point of view, uh, which is very important because you really want your audience to understand the point of view of your character and understand what the conflicts are, understand um, the character arc, and you want to be able to root for your character. So I don't think you can fully experience tension unless you're 
invested in the story, invested in the character. Some movies it's easier to do. It has a lot to do with the performance. It has a lot to do with the writing. Um, it has a lot to do with the way it's shot. But my responsibility as an editor is to convey emotion. And once you've got the audience hooked, and once the audience, you feel the audience is not going to get bored or their mind is not going to wander, and that they're you know, narratively engaged in the character and in the story, then you have room to let tension build because it's only going to be most effective when you feel that your character's life or ideals or um, well-being is at stake. I mean, there's, there's horror tension, which is simply you as the audience are, are terrified of something about to jump out. But when you're talking about tension and drama, it's um, embedded in, in the personality of the character. I mean, the, the film was not a challenge. I really enjoyed working with the directors. Um, again, there were two of them. It was my second time working with a pair of directors. Um, but I just really adore them, and they're very um, strong social advocates. They, they have a background in doing a lot of um, political work uh, as well as music videos. And so for me... I've worked a lot with a lot of first-time uh, feature film directors, and I enjoy it. I enjoy guiding them through the process or letting them know from years of experience um, what to expect from a studio screening or what to expect from producer notes. So I always look to forge, a, you know, to form a relationship, and uh, I think Gerard Bush and Christopher Wren's uh, they, they definitely have expressed interest uh, very strongly that, I, that I'm their editor for their next film. And, um, you know, that, that's what I, I find most prideful is when you make people happy. I mean, we know that the film itself is, as I mentioned, um, you know, this, this was going to be a polarizing film. There are going to be people who would be offended by it and others would be moved and inspired to reflect on its message. Um, tackling issues of uh, the enslaved from our country's past. I mean, it's never an easy sell. It's, it's not what you would say is a feel-good <laughs> atmosphere, but it's, I think, very important for social discussion. And that's really what we wanted to convey throughout this film, is generating more discussion about the socio-political climate in this country. And hopefully we've done that. The movie starts with a, and you'd have to tell me how long it is, but a multi-minute, looks like uninterrupted uh, 1917-ish tracking shot. <laughs> can, you, can you talk about, was there other coverage in there? Or what did you have to do in that scene to be able to edit it or to decide that, that it should be a one -er? Well, this was the director's intent. It was actually early in the process where they shot this. And they, they had to go back and shoot it on another day because... I guess the camera team didn't have the rig that they needed uh, to do it in a very steady fashion. On the reshoot day, they did, I think, about six or seven takes. I remember they said the light in this take was really good, but the camera work in this take was so much better, and the actors, their performance was so much better in this take. Um, so we wound up stitching three shots together. And we found some secret places in which to do the stitching. Uh, Jared was very good at this. <laughs> you know, he, what did you use to do that? Was that After Effects? No, that, that was just, well, it was a combination of things because there was, we wanted to add, I mean, it's a, it's a really beautiful, and then it evolves into this horrifying shot. And, um, you know, we just wanted to, we needed to stabilize it a little bit. Uh, and then in addition to that, we added the wipes. So we had done a couple of things in Avid to try and stabilize it. And at the time, our apprentice editor, Nick Haradopoulos, was able to bring it into After Effects. And he fiddled with the warp stabilizer. I mean, I don't know what he did, 
but it came out really smooth. And we were like, how'd you do this? And he was like, that's the 1% magician. And, uh, and so then I brought that back into Avid and we found the best places to do the wipes. And so I just used, you know, a keyframed animat, um, I think at the time we didn't even have a license for Mocha because that came later when we were doing screen comps and I was like, I need Mocha. <laughs> and so that was just animat. Um, but yeah, we, we it comprised three elements just to just to get the best performance and the best uh, the best light. I think there were, I think he said, yeah, six or seven of one part of it. And then like, I think there were like nine takes of another part. It was, it was a difficult t- shot to pull off, but it, I think it came out really well. Uh, ILM worked on the sequence. They did wonderful work with it um, because we had to add in some bushes and things like that. Also, we worked with Temperamental. Uh, they added some butterflies at the beginning. So it was really kind of a multifaceted approach to make the shot work and ultimately the color timing. But really, mm-hmm. the, the thing that made it work um, was having the opening titles on it, which I always, in my mind, said, well, this really... It's perfect for opening titles, but it, it I think, complemented the length of that opening shot and the titles just kind of turned out perfectly with the music. Do either one of you remember how long that shot was? It was about eight minutes, was it? Yeah, it was about eight minutes. Was the shot itself for eight minutes or the opening sequence was eight minutes? Because I always viewed the whole opening sequence up until the title card as, as you know, because I, I think I, the, the whole cue, because it's all married to this one, the beautiful, I mean, the music in the in the movie. Actually, we didn't talk about that. I don't know if you want, I mean, that cue was sent by the, the composers early on. I mean, they had sent a bunch of uh, cues to us that were sketches, I think, right, John? Like, from reading the script? Yeah. No, they, they knocked it out of the park. I mean, they scored that opening theme without having seen a frame of the film. And it just really worked. I do think the shot itself, because, you know, the, the Steadicam operator, I mean, they, they couldn't do it all in one take, even though it looks like it's one take. He just physically couldn't continue. So that's, there was at least one place where we had to stitch. Yeah, I think the shot is more like around six minutes. John and Jared, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate talking to you about uh, Antebellum. Steve, it was a pleasure. Really enjoyed our time. Thank you. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out Pro Video Coalition for more than 250 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guests, John Axelrad, ACE, and Jared Simon. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.